0: Hello, I'm Rick Millenthal and welcome to Voices of Resilience, a podcast series focused on people's journeys through adversity and trauma to resilience. Today, I'm so excited to have with us Dr. Craig Bryan, the Director of Recovery and Resilience at the Ohio State University Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Health and one of the nation's most accomplished thought leaders in the fight against suicide. He has written scores of scientific articles and several books on managing suicide risk. He's an expert on suicide risk among veterans. He's a real innovator in helping people find resilience during their darkest and most challenging times. Greg, thanks for joining us.
1: Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: Now, the last time I saw you, was in our family room. Karen and I were there with you and your wonderful wife, Annabelle. You had just gotten off the plane. You were visiting Columbus to see if you wanted to join the Ohio State University. I remember quite clearly, I think, as we got into the conversation, we were talking about, you know, what your goals should be. And you said, our goal needs to be zero suicide in this nation.
1: You know, when I think about that concept of zero suicide, sometimes people have the perspective, is that a realistic goal? And my response to that is, you know, well, I, I don't know what other goal there could be. I mean, should we have one suicide? Should we have two? Um, um, a what, hundred? What's the number we should use other than zero? So I think that kind of outlook and perspective has been really central to our research over the past 10 to 15 years. And it's something that we'll continue to work on. Um, And it's part of a big reason why we ultimately decided to move and come here.
0: Well, suicide is up, I think, 43 percent in this country or close to it in the last seven years. And I don't know if you know, but our motivation for getting involved in mental health. As you know, I'm I'm CEO of a marketing agency called The Shipyard. And the inspiration behind this podcast was uh, about three years ago, our business partner, David Grislock, and his wife, Elizabeth, uh, lost their son at 17 years old, David Jr. And we witnessed that. And this was not a couple that was in denial. They focused for Two years helping him navigate, and they couldn't save him. And we learned so much about how little we know about this field. And so to hear this with a goal, and I I do understand it's a goal much like man on the moon or we're going to cure cancer, but it needs to be the end goal. A goal of mitigating suicide is, is so inspiring. Why do you think we can achieve that? Why do you think we can turn the tide?
1: Well, I I think we've been able to turn the tide with a lot of other complex problems as well. And the specific case that I use a lot to kind of inform my work is how we've been able to reduce traffic fatalities. So, Mm -hmm. you know, despite more cars on the road, we drive farther, we drive more. Um, and that's been a trend that has continued, really. I mean, I guess since the invention of the automobile at, at mass market um, in the past 30 years or so, particularly starting in the 80s, we have seen uh, quite a pronounced drop in traffic fatalities. And, um, and you know, traffic fatalities, this is a complex problem as well. There's not one cause, of you know, dying in a car wreck. Lots and lots of different things can contribute to that, but we've been successful anyway. And I think um, when I look at our success in, in that arena, in injury prevention, we've been able to see these large-scale reductions in mortality. And when I look at that, I think, well, we, c- we could do the same with suicide
0: of course, it's important to have a change in thinking, but you must see something in your research and your work in which you believe there's hope, not just a change in thinking.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So a lot of the research that um, I did at the University of Utah before coming here was really focused on the intervention and treatment side. And so um, some of the studies that we've published that I think you know certainly give a, a you know a lot of great deal of hope as um, we've been able to show that you know brief cognitive behavioral therapy and uh, the, the treatment that we've focused a lot of our attention on, um, reduces suicide attempts by 60%. Um, and then we, we did some other work with uh, interventions called crisis response planning, and that reduced suicide attempts by 76%. And these are in, in each of these studies, we were comparing these sort of newer treatments to the traditional status quo way of um, treating and helping people who come in for mental health treatment for suicide risk.
0: This journey began for you when you were in the military, didn't it?
1: it was um, especially when i was deployed to iraq in 2009 while i was deployed there i worked at a combat forward deployed hospital and you know suicide decedents were brought to our hospital um and in iraq you know when everybody's carrying a loaded weapon you know it was it was firearms that was how basically everybody died by suicide in iraq and and so these soldiers and other service members would be brought into our hospital. You know, we would keep their bodies alive so that they could be transported back home. They could potentially, we could have their organs donated to save other people's lives. Uh, in some cases, family members could say their goodbyes before, um, before pulling the plug. And it, it was a very sobering experience for me because you know, as a, as a clinical psychologist, and I think this is true of most mental health professionals, you know, we work with suicidal individuals all the time, but when somebody dies by suicide, it happens somewhere else. It happens at their home usually, or happens outside of the clinic. Um, And so many of us in the discipline are sort of, I think insulated from the gravity and the reality of suicide. And so uh, I, I, one moment in particular in Iraq. We had four suicide decedents on our unit. And I just remember standing at the foot of their beds. And you know, you just come face to face with the brutality of suicide, especially firearms suicide. Um and it just really had a very profound effect on me. I was like, this is this is a side of suicide that I'd never confronted before. It was always just sort of like an intellectual, you know, thing that kind of happened somewhere else. And um, it, it definitely uh, solidified my commitment to suicide prevention. And I think that experience, um, you know, has, is been a very important central motivator to my work. It shapes my research questions. And now I I think um, kind of a newer direction that we're really focusing on is firearm suicide. We're really zeroing in on guns in particular. And and I, I would say that was directly attributable to what I experienced when I was in the military.
0: What happens when you're in the military, what happens when you're in an environment like Iraq that might increase the propensity for suicide?
1: Yeah, it's, yeah, it's a question that many of us have been chasing now for about a decade. And, um, you know, historically, military personnel had lower suicide rates
0: than civilians. That is interesting. Yeah, it's say that again. Historically,
1: yeah, historically military personnel have had lower suicide rates than civilians. And it was around 2005-2006 that the military suicide rate started to increase and you know, in the first year or two it was you know, it was noted and I, I remember that was when I joined the military in 2005 and so that first Couple of years of service, I remember. Everyone's like, "Oh, this is sort of weird," but we didn't know if it, you know, it, maybe it was just a bad year. You know, who who really knows? Um, and then it was in 2008 to 2009 when uh, the army rate finally caught up to and then surpassed the general population rate for the first time in several decades. And um, and that was really where it was kind of an uh oh moment and. Um, That that was where I remember uh, while while I was still in the military, there was a big shift. And early on, in those early days, the first sort of hypothesis was that it was deployment. Um, You know, it took many, many years for us doing so many different research studies to basically finally conclude deployment is not the contributing factor it's in that sense, when I thought of this question a lot, especially when talking about journalists, and they're always surprised when they say, actually, the, the service members who are most likely to kill themselves have never been deployed. And they're like, well, what? I don't understand. I say, well, why does anyone kill themselves? There, there are things that go on in life, and it's not like military personnel are immune to that. They have the same problems. Um, there are some unique challenges Associated with military service um, that might play a ro- a small role, but overall, you know, it's these difficulties in life. It's stress. It's um, you know, kind of feeling like you've been left behind or isolated. Uh, feeling like other people don't care about you or that you're trapped. Um, I, I will say, though, one thing that we are starting to find that maybe. Is a unique contributor in the military is uh, firearms. Um, so about about fifty to fifty five percent of suicides in the U.S. Um, involve a firearm. Um, by comparison, about seventy percent of military and veteran suicides involve a firearm. And so, service members and veterans are much more likely to own a gun uh, than civilians. You know, we really need to start talking about guns and suicide. Otherwise, we are never, ever going to bend this curve.
0: So you have focused some work on gun owners, right?
1: Yeah, it's actually a growing piece of research that we do. Some of the interesting things that we've learned, for instance, you know, firearms account for more than half of U.S. suicides. It's overwhelmingly uh, middle-aged men who use firearms uh, for their suicide. Those who use firearms are less likely to have a known mental illness or mental health diagnosis. Um, We also know that those who use firearms are more likely um, to have experienced a significant life stress or a a crisis in the time immediately leading up to their death, or at least there's an anticipated anticipation of a crisis um, in the near future. And it's uh, so a lot of our thinking about suicide now has sort of moved away from historical uh, understandings of suicide, where we've traditionally um, conceptualized suicide as being caused by mental illness or being a result of mental illness. Um, But actually there's a lot of data that doesn't support that conclusion um, and there, uh, the firearm owners seem to be one subgroup for whom maybe mental illness is not um, as prominent of a risk factor. And, um, and so we need to start thinking about suicide in this community in a very different way.
0: You know, that's very personal to my wife, Karen, and I. Uh, I don't think we told you this when we were together. Um, but Karen lost her father. I lost my father-in-law to suicide. And it was very early in our marriage, first year or so in our marriage. And he was certainly young. And this is a man that I don't think ever would have had a firearm, but that is how he killed himself. I think it was shocking in itself. And it's just interesting you say that.
1: Yeah. It's, I mean, and what you just described there is a story that we hear from so many family members and loved ones we hear from parents as well we, we know the teenagers not only are, are they the majority of them dying by firearms but it's usually their parents guns that they're using and it it's like it's such an uncomfortable topic to talk about suicide's uncomfortable to talk about and then at least in the United States guns are really uncomfortable to talk about it's so politically contentious And I think that's why we're sort of losing this battle right now and why rates are going up. It's because we're not able to sit down and say, look, you know, 50%, more than 50% of those who die by suicide are using a gun. And two-thirds of gun violence deaths in the United States are suicides.
0: Hmm. Two-thirds of gun violence is suicide. So when we look at those numbers, two-thirds in the United States is suicide.
1: It varies across states. Here in Ohio, for instance, uh, it's not quite as severe, but you're still seeing the majority of gun deaths in the state involve suicide. Hmm. And so when we have discussions about suicide prevention, pretty much all we ever talk about is mental illness and mental health issues. When we talk about gun violence and firearm policy in the United States, we say, well, suicide, that's not a part of this discussion. And it's like, well, actually, yeah, it kind of has to be. Because that's really where a lot of the numbers are coming from. Um, and so a lot of the work that we're now doing as we, as we increasingly focus on suicide amongst farm owners, it's, it's really looking at the life-saving benefits of gun safes and locking devices um, and having gun owners being comfortable talking to their friends. Like if you know your neighbor, your friend, a family member is going through one of these tough patches, um, coming forward and saying, hey man, let me hold on to your guns for a while until you get through this. Um, in the same way that we, do that we do that with our friends who are drunk, we say, hey man, I'm not gonna let you drive, it's too dangerous. But once you've sobered up, I'll give you your car keys back. Um, and we need to kind of think the same way Um, about guns. And if we were to do that, the data are actually pretty compelling. We could probably reduce suicides by about 50% if we started thinking about uh, firearm suicide in a very different way.
0: What's interesting to me is what you're saying, that that actual availability to a firearm at that time is contributing to suicide because at that moment they have this
1: yeah. So, so during a moment of despair and an acute crisis that may only last a few seconds or minutes, having easy access to a loaded weapon in essence weaponizes the despair, um, and it renders that despair deadly. This is what I think. Thinking about suicide as a whole from an injury prevention model, very similar to. Traffic fatalities is going to be absolutely key because, you know, we, we, don't even, we haven't eliminated cars. That's not how we reduced traffic fatalities. What we did is we built safer cars. And we built safer roadways, and so if we have those equivalents to seat belts and airbags and um, you know guardrails on the side of the road, that's I think where we're going to make a big difference. And we absolutely need the firearm community to help us out with that because they're the ones who are going to know how do we build sort of a safer environment um, at our homes than elsewhere, so that. During these momentary periods of despair, um, even if you are a gun owner, you're protected from the potential evil outcomes.
0: It's also interesting talking about the stigmatization, which is obviously true in talking about suicide at all. Uh, I'll have to ask, Karen, we have shared with people that we lost dad this way, and um, but I don't know that I've ever even brought up until this conversation that it was a firearm. It seems so violent and it's difficult to conceive of. And so as a result, you're right. I don't think it's spoken about.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's a contentious issue. And I think we've, you know, my, my experience uh, with some of the colleagues that I've been working with on uh, firearm suicide, what we've found is that you often feel like you're walking on eggshells because you're in between these two sort of worlds where the suicide prevention community tends to have one uh, very extreme view of firearms that are sort of diametrically opposed to the predominant views amongst uh, gun owners. And so a lot of times the two audiences or two groups are talking past each other and they're not really listening. And um, we found it really, really valuable to think about this from a a different perspective, more of a harm reduction model and say, look, you know, because of laws within the U.S., because of our culture and our society, probably we are not going to get rid of guns anytime in the near future. So being able to partner um, with gun owners to approach this in a a very, very different way, in a very respectful, um, but also, I think, more effective way.
0: Now, you met your wife, Annabelle, in the service, in Iraq, I believe, right? Yeah,
1: yeah. We were deployed together in Iraq, and that was how we met.
0: And you work together now, and you've worked together for a number of years,
1: yeah, yeah. So we've been working together for, uh, yeah, a decade now. Um, we both were at the University of Utah and we uh, we, we both uh, sort of co-led the National Center for Veteran Studies. So we had a research uh, institute there uh, focused on suicide and PTSD amongst military personal veterans. We offered therapy there. And so we built this big research program there at Utah and then last year, as we were looking to move, uh, we wanted to move beyond that. We wanted to help. We wanted to take what we had learned with the military. And in essence, we wanted to help non-military people as well. So we started looking. We said, where else could we maybe move beyond what we're doing and, and take the next step and do more? And uh, that was how we learned about uh, Ohio State University. and. Um, And that was exactly what OSU was looking for. And so it was a really exciting move. And we were uh, very pleased that we could, in essence, move this research program that we had built together over a decade. Um, We're transferring a lot of our projects here. We're continuing them here from Ohio. And we're
0: already. Well, I knew you were recruited by a number of institutions. So why did you choose Ohio State? Yeah, so there
1: were actually a number of reasons and a friend of mine at another university basically said, you know, I'm not sure if we have anything available here, but one of my good friends is the new chair of psychiatry at Ohio State and you would be perfect for what he's trying to accomplish there in the department. And so she connected us and um, Luan and I had an initial phone call. And it was just this amazing conversation. There was a very clear vision for growth. Um, There was a lot of excitement about uh, not only the work that like that I had done, but also just sort of like excitement surrounding all of the researchers, all of the faculty here at OSU. Like that was an amazing phone call. And one of the things that really stood out to me that really made a big difference was um, one of the questions that I asked in all of my interviews was, you know, what's your vision for the department? And basically Luan was the only one who had an answer. And so he, and it was a great answer. And once we came and were able to visit and meet not only the other faculty members, but also um, you know, all, of the, all of the many people in the community who are supporting the department.
0: Do you remember what it was about his vision that struck you?
1: Yeah. So one aspect of it was um, first, it was just sort of like the the clarity, where in essence wanting to focus on suicide prevention, um, which obviously was a good fit uh, for the work that we did, uh, but also trauma and addictions. And then uh, also, what I what I really liked as well was that the vision really had a focus on resilience. Um, And so, which I, I really appreciate. Like as a as a suicide researcher, you know, I've I've often Kind of felt like the that suicide researchers have been largely motivated by the question, why do people die by suicide? And I've always found it much more interesting and useful to ask the question, why do people choose to live despite adversity? Because you know, when when you're in that moment of despair and darkness and you're on the edge, like why do you not take the step forward? Why do you come back? And how do you Move on uh, with your life, and so everything that I've done has really kind of led me to this orientation towards growth and resilience and recovery, and that was so central to the vision of OSU Psychiatry Department that it, it I was like, this is sort of philosophically very closely aligned to how I approach my work and how I think about these things, and so it seemed like it would just be a really a great environment where I would be encouraged to pursue um, the type of research that I think will be most important for saving lives and helping people to live good lives that are worth living.
0: Now, you're talking about Dr. Luan Fon, who's chairman of the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Health. You know, he was integral in launching this podcast series, and I, I love the way you said that, and I love the way Luan said that. Instead of focusing on why people succumb to suicide, you're focused on resilience.
1: We focus so much on, like, in essence, keeping people alive that we've forgotten about, well, a, a critical piece of suicide prevention is helping people to live good lives. And so if life is worth living, then it makes death sort of a a less likely option. There's sort of less value attributed to death. And conversely, life is seen as being more valuable. It's worth it. Um, And I I think we've just sort of drifted from that path um, in our work where it, it's very striking how much suicide prevention is all about just keeping people physically alive, but then we don't do act- actually do anything to help improve the quality of life of people.
0: Hmm. You're right. It's much harder to convince someone of what they should fear and much easier to convince them of why you should want something, why you should cherish something. Yeah, So it's actually in your title, your Director of Recovery and Resilience, and that is a part of the STAR program at the Ohio State University.
1: So the STAR program, STAR stands for Stress, Trauma, and Resilience, and I was also really impressed. The STAR program is, in my opinion, an unprecedented um, community-facing element uh, that involves um, You know members of the local community and brings them into uh, the program or programmatic aspects of things, and um, that's something I think will be really key going forward. So with with STAR, then where uh, we're kind of hoping that we'll be able to go is to not only continue uh, this important work looking at. you know, helping people to recover after exposure to trauma and severe stress, uh, but to look as well at how does suicide fit into this equation? Um, how does uh, how, how does addiction fit within this as well? Um, so that we, in essence, become the go-to place for. Uh, individuals struggling uh, with any of these stress-related problems, and they could come to us uh, for help, for assistance. Um, We can contribute to more resilient families and communities because I, I think another key part of the STAR program is recognizing that you know, recovery and resilience is not just something that's within the person, right? And that's how we sometimes think of resilience. It's like you have this thing inside of you and you're either resilient or you're not. But what I think is kind of important about the STAR program is saying that, well, resilience is also about the community. It's about who you surround yourself with, um, the neighborhood that you live in, um, the resources that are available to you. um, And all of these things influence individuals and can help to shape um, their long-term trajectory in establishing those meaningful lives uh, despite uh, the experience of
0: trauma or adversity. And you're embarking on building a new center.
1: Yeah, so we've uh, been in the planning stages of developing a center of excellence uh, surrounding um, in particular suicide trauma and addictions. And one of the things that I think will be unique about the center is um, you know, being able to provide answers to some of the biggest questions that So, you know, kind of going back to this notion of uh, suicide prevention, like why are we not better at this in essence? Um, That'll be a big part of the Star Center of Excellence. Um, I think, uh, you know, another question that, you know, has been on my mind a lot in the past few years um, involving PTSD which is a secondary focus of my work is you know why why is it that we have a, we have a handful of treatments that are actually pretty darn good for helping people to overcome the consequences of trauma exposure so we have therapies where if you receive the therapy if you finish the therapy you have a better than 50% chance of not having PTSD anymore and research has shown that something like up to 80 to 90% of individuals with PTSD who receive these trauma-focused therapies benefit to some degree from the treatment. But why, why isn't that a higher number? Like, why is it that only about 55% fully recover from PTSD that, such that they no longer have the diagnosis anymore? And if we can understand why that's the case… Can we get that number to 65% and then eventually 75% and then maybe 85%? Um, And that's the type of research that we're going to be doing at the Star Center. And I think um, my expectation is that we'll eventually start to attract individuals who perhaps have spent a long time going from treatment provider to treatment provider without much success um, and eventually coming to us and perhaps we'll be able to help them in a way that others haven't been able to help them and through that process we'll be able to unlock some of the mysteries that surround you know why do people get stuck after trauma Uh, why is it that some of them eventually find themselves you know, in the midst of a suicidal crisis. Um, And if we can understand those processes, then how can we help to prevent them from traveling those roads? And then most critically, how can we help them to reestablish or perhaps create for the first time a meaningful life, something that they have wanted for a long time, but perhaps has um, just sort of eluded their ability to
0: achieve. Do you have hope for the future?
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. I think one of the things I'll say, you know, being in the suicide prevention community um, now for as long as I have is that, you know, even though by and large rates continue to increase in the United States, which is sort of unique, they're, they're going down everywhere else in the world. Um, we have started to now uncover some really important clues. We, we now know that certain types of treatments and therapies reliably reduce suicidal thoughts and behaviors. Um, We know that certain types of therapies reliably reduce PTSD symptoms and are even good enough that the majority of people no longer have PTSD afterwards. We know that these treatments tend to have enduring effects that last for years later. Um, And so when we look at all of these problems and issues through that lens, there's a tremendous amount to be hopeful about. And those are, those I think are just sort of the first steps. Um, There's so much more that we need to uncover and so much more that we need to learn. And I think that uh, we're starting to figure out where do we st- need to start looking for those answers? And I, I'm very confident, very hopeful that over the pa- next uh, few years, in the next few decades, we're going to be uncovering so much so much more knowledge and solutions um, that perhaps like right now, we're, we're probably not even conceiving of them, um, but they will become obvious to us in the not too distant future.
0: Dr. Craig Bryant, this has been fascinating. It gives us hope that we can actually reduce and maybe someday end what is an epidemic of suicide in this country. We wish you luck, courage, and Godspeed on this journey. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you
1: for having me.
0: What a fascinating discussion, especially right now in September, which is Suicide Prevention Awareness Month. Many of us have felt like suicide is an epidemic in this country. So to have a leader like Craig Bryan from The Ohio State University talk to us about reducing and maybe ending suicide gives us hope and inspiration. Voices of Resilience is produced by the marketing engineers at The Shipyard in collaboration with the Ohio State University Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Health. To listen to more of the series, visit com. Many thanks to our producers, Mike Long, Kate Masters, Benson Trinon, Coop Studios, and my favorite, Karen Millenthal. Thanks for joining us.